0: This morning, let's just jump right in. I'm titling this message, Holy Ground. Holy Ground. Got a lot of material to cover and uh, a short amount of time. So let's go ahead and let's pray. Let's quiet our hearts and let's look to our Lord of Life this morning. Lord, our souls will be satisfied when we remember you. God, we remember uh, the psalmist David praying those words, my soul will be satisfied as with marrow and rich foods when I think of you, when I remember you. And we do that right now, Father. We remember you. We remember your presence. We remember your Holy Spirit. And we remember you as a God who is not distant, but who is close and who is near. And so Holy Spirit, we think on you right now. We adore you. We love you. And thank you for your presence in this place. And we ask that as we go to your word, and as we meditate on all that you say in the holy scriptures, we ask, Lord of life, that you would teach us. We pray that you would make us lie down in green pastures this morning, and that you would lead us beside still and quiet waters. We pray that you would restore our souls. That whatever circumstances are present here in the room, whatever hardships, whatever frustrations, uh, whatever areas of our life that have just gone sideways this week, Lord, we ask that you would give peace. We ask that you would bring joy. We ask that you would be the God of all comfort, who comforts, comforts us in our distress so that we may comfort others. So we drink you in this morning. We feast on your love. We feast on your holy scriptures. And we ask that everything we give attention to this morning would be pleasing to you, and that you would speak to us through it. And we commit ourselves right now to be diligent, to be doers of the word, and not just hearers only. So we look to you this morning, Holy Spirit, and we ask that you would teach us according to your word, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Um, Have you ever had a sickness? That you were just trying to fight off that infection, that thing in your body that you uh, tried to kick and tried to beat and tried to just get healthy. Um, I know it's kind of cold season right now. I've been kicking a bit of a cold myself. Uh, Started in the nose and moved down to the chest, one of those things. Many of you have probably been trying to kick a cold these past few weeks. It's just going around. There's just that stuff that we're trying to flush out of our system and get out of our body. Well, Uh, When JC and I uh, were about to get married, uh, actually a week before our wedding, we came in contact with this and and actually uh, had an occurrence where sickness was no joke in the Caldwell house. Well, it wasn't the Caldwell house yet because we weren't living together, but I want to make that clear. But anyway, the week before our wedding, we were just stressed as all get outs. And for those of you who have been engaged or who are currently engaged, you know full well that sometimes in the engagement phase, you are just freaking stressed, and you're losing sleep and you're anxious and you're just ready to be married. And there it comes that point where you're just like, just forget these details. Like, Mike, I just want to be married. Can we just like get married in a courthouse and do this thing in like three years? Cause I just, I just want to be married already. Well, that's where we were. We were stressed, we were tired. And uh, this one night, a week before our wedding, uh, JC was living with my sister. We just moved to Colorado, and uh, and I was living with my dad, and we were preparing, obviously, to move into our apartment together in a week. But uh, we were on on uh, baby duty, on niece and nephew duty one night, and we were in charge of babysitting the kids and putting them down. And then once we put them down, we were exhausted. So JC was going to go to bed. I was going to drive home and go to bed. And we were going to, for the first time in a long time, just get rest—a night where both of us separately just whew, okay breathe. And so we're, we're putting the kids down, and there's four of them. There's Adri, Hudson, Cooper, and uh, Ellis, and we're putting the kids down, and, uh, and we get to the third one, and we put uh, Hudson down, who at the time was the youngest, and we put all the kids in their room, Good night, guys, love you. shut the door, and then, okay, good, time to sleep. So um, I, I, I tell JC goodbye, I'm putting my shoes on, JC's getting ready for bed, finally we're about to get rest. And then all of a sudden, as I'm getting ready to walk out the door, we hear whining upstairs. We're like, okay, sure. okay, let's go check on the kids. So we look up, we go upstairs, we follow kind of the whining noise, and we find that Hudson, the youngest, who was three at the time, was just whining. He was crying. He was that little whimpering cry, you know. And so we open the door, and it's pitch black in his room, but, but as we open the door, we, we start to catch this whiff of putridness, putridity, if I may use that word, just Okay, something, there's a funk in the air right now. Something's not right. And we turn on the light and Hudson is covered head to toe in vomit. And, uh, and, and if you're easily squeamish, plug your ears right now because he had peaches for dinner and people, there were whole peaches in his bed that had not been digested. My goodness, we were just, we, it, it was disgusting. Head to toe. Peaches stuck to his shirt on the root, you know, on the, on his lip, all over it. It was just, it's like, my gosh. Okay. So we're like, we got to give him a bath. And so we throw him in the bath and he's crying and he's like shivering. You can tell that he's got the flu or some bad bug that he's fighting and he's crying. And we wash the peaches off of him and we grab his bed sheet and we throw it in the washer. And, you know, being a good fiance, I can't just leave JC to figure this out on her own. So I'm helping her and we're, okay, let's just figure this out. And so we throw the bed sheet in the washer. We start washing it. But luckily there was an extra one. So we remake his bed. We get him out of the bath. We wrap him in a towel. We wash him off. We put him in clean jammies. It's like, okay, Hudson, buddy, here's some water. Just go to sleep. Sleep this off. Mommy and daddy will see you in the morning. So we put him down. And no exaggeration, not two seconds after his feet hit the crib, blah, peaches again. You got to be kidding me. Just all over the bed, all over his jammies. It gets on my shirt. I'm like, you, no way. And at this time, I mean, we we had spent time rocking him and after the bath and everything, it had been like an hour and a half of getting him to bed and getting him calmed down. So it's like, you got to be kidding me. So we put him back in the bath. We wash the peaches off again. We take the bed sheet off. We just put a towel on his bed because we're out of bed sheets, right? And, uh, and and we take another two or three hours of just trying to, okay, buddy, it's okay, it's okay, just relax. And finally, at like one in the morning, we get him down, he falls asleep, he is peach-free, out of his system, no more vomiting, and we're exhausted, and again stressed as all get out and just ready for this night to be over. So JC goes to bed, I drive home, I go to sleep, and it was the worst week of our life. I'm just going to say, the week leading up to our wedding was the worst week of our life, but we survived it. And we saw with this thing of Hudson and this flu... We saw uh, this occurrence where there was a sickness just trying to get flushed out of the system. That sometimes there's just that thing, that flu bug, that cold, whatever it is, that your body is just trying to exterminate and get out of you. Well, this was the case uh, with the church, actually, in the first century. The body of Christ, if we uh, use that metaphor that scriptures so often use throughout uh, the, the New Testament, especially this body of Christ, the church, um was, was trying to flush something out of its system. But instead of a physical sickness, um the church was actually dealing with another kind of virus. The church was um was was coming in contact with this virus that was spreading uh into it and threatening its very life. And it was at a time where the apostles, so we got Paul, we got James, we got John, we got Peter. These guys, these heralders of the faith who had seen the resurrected Christ, they were uh, charging the church to uh, hold fast to doctrine. And they were teaching these foundational centerpieces of doctrine uh, that that the church was to order their lives around. And they're they're seeking to just build the church up, right? The church is uh, brand new. It's an infant. They're just trying to strengthen it and get it strong for life and godly and that it may live in the identity as the people of God. But while they were seeking to strengthen the church, there was this other group that was seeking to uh, bring down the church and to undermine the church. And there were these false teachers who kind of infested the church with heresy and with heretical doctrine. And not uh, some... Just some uh, difference in opinion and not some ideas that are debatable and we can all kind of disagree on but still be unified. But instead, these false teachers had crept into the church and they were questioning the very foundations of the Christian faith. Uh, They were spreading heretical doctrines that were rifting the foundations and that were um, damaging and destroying the church at its very core. And uh, it was a period of decades that really turned into centuries that the church was fighting these false doctrines. And just, they were on the defensive, just trying to protect the church from these heresies that were absolutely going to destroy it if they weren't careful. And so you have these apostles and these early church fathers throughout the years who were just trying to build the church up and get this disgusting, gross, destructive heresy out of the church's bloodstream. And uh, there was a number of different heresies that kind of infect the church as you study church history and as you look at uh, the New Testament epistles, you see that kind of there's a a number of different pressure points or areas of friction where heresy is plaguing the church. But there was one heresy in particular that the apostles and the early church fathers gave uh, unique and special attention to, and that was the heresy of Gnosticism. Everybody say Gnosticism. And uh, Gnosticism— didn't become like a full-blown system of thought. Arguably, a lot of scholars estimate until the second or third century, and it, then it made a full assault on the church and absolutely went ape. And uh, the early church fathers had to go uh, toe-to-toe with all these heretics, and then you see these councils come, and they're, they're trying to flush it out for centuries, this heresy of Gnosticism. But Gnosticism actually uh, began infecting and plaguing the church even in its very emph- uh, infancy, in the decades of the 40s and 50s, right when the church was starting to form and starting to blossom. And this is going somewhere, okay? Track with me. Some of you history buffs are loving this and you're eating this up. Some of you, I'm seeing a glazed face like... Okay, I'm, where am I right now? Oh my gosh. But we're going somewhere, okay? So stick with me just for a couple minutes, and then this will all make sense. But Gnosticism was starting to plague the church. It was infecting the church. And um, there was a lot to this heresy of Gnosticism as we study it. A lot of different strands. It's really a complex belief system, or it was. And uh, we, we could talk about a number of different doctrines that it held to. But one of the doctrines of Gnosticism was uh, what we call Gnostic dualism. And what Gnostic dualism held to was that um, the material world, the physical world, was innately evil. There was absolutely no good to it. It was disgusting. It was evil. And the the spirit realm, on the other hand, was innately and completely good. And so you had this complete evil and this complete good um, juxtaposed against themselves. And they said that the material world cannot be good in its very nature. And we got a slide up here that, that breaks down really the core belief system then that that leads to. Gnostic dualism, essentially God maintains distance from the physical but and can only be found in the spiritual. If you follow that line of thinking that the material world is innately and completely fallen and flawed and evil with no good whatsoever. Um, and the spirit realm is completely good. With no evil whatsoever, then this naturally arises. God has to distance himself as a holy God from the material world and uh, live exclusively in the spirit world and be found exclusively in the spirit world. And that's, that seems all finding good at, at a distance. And as we look at that, we think, well, I kind of believe a lot of that, maybe. And some of us may, um, may even agree with, with a lot of what that statement says. But the thing about this doctrine was that this, um, with with the heretics, called into question the very nature of the incarnation. Uh, They took this to the extreme, and they said that because God absolutely cannot be in matter, the incarnation cannot happen. God cannot have the audacity or even the ability to come and to be man, which then has these vast implications when it comes to our salvation, right? Because if Jesus wasn't fully man, then he can't be our atoning sacrifice, if uh, Jesus wasn't fully man, then he couldn't be, um, in his very nature, he couldn't be the acceptable propitiation of our sins. So he had to become man, and it's this doctrine of the incarnation that is the foundation of the Christian faith, and these Gnostics were calling into question uh, this, uh, this doctrine because of Gnostic dualism. The, the material world is flawed, and the spirit world is good. And so, um, you know, Gnosticism began attacking the foundation of the faith, and and uh, it, it started to split churches and rift churches. But then the Apostle Paul comes along, and in First Corinth or in Colossians one, he says that no, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Him, all things were made, and in Him, all things hold together. He's saying that Jesus, this, in, this preeminent God, became incarnate, and he is, in fact, this one, this Messiah that we've been waiting for. And then John comes along, and he says, no, 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 wait a second. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yes, divinity had the audacity to come and to dwell in this material world. And even though the material world is fallen, yes, and even though it's flawed, yes, God can still and did break through and dwell with us in this material world. And with the help of the apostles and with the help of the early church fathers throughout the decades and centuries of the church's life, uh, we see that Gnosticism was uh, eventually, around the 300s, completely expelled from the church and was flushed out of its system. And this diseased doctrine of Gnosticism and this heresy that sought to so undermine the Christian faith was now out of the church. And it was formally cast... Uh, out from the bloodstream of the body of Christ. And uh, though Gnosticism now is ridden from the church, and though it's dead and in the grave in a lot of ways, uh, and though many, if not all of us, would say, yeah, I disagree with Gnostic notions. I disagree with Gnostic dualism. Obviously, I hold to the incarnation. I wonder, how many times are we Gnostics when it comes to our relationship with the Lord? I wonder how many times we divide the Spirit and what God is in and what God's not in. I wonder how many times we put so much stock and so much emphasis on God's in the times when I read my Bible, and God's in the times when I come to church, and God's in the times when I worship, and God's in the times when I'm bumping uh, Phil Wickham or Bethel or Hillsong United in my car. Oh, he's there. He's in those times. But the times when I'm working out at the gym... And the times when I'm doing homework, and the times when I'm not really in in the the spirit mode, God's less if absent altogether from those times. That's Gnostic. That's viewing God as spiritual, which he is, absolutely. But that's discounting the reality that God is in the physical. That God can dwell with us in these activities. That when we participate in things that aren't quote-unquote spiritual, God is still very much with us. He's still very much present. And uh, if we think any differently, and if we uh, divide in our minds what God's in and what he's not in, with the exception of sin, obviously, then we're kind of gnostic in our thinking, and we uh, build our relationship with the Lord at times under these false assumptions and these false presuppositions, because uh, now we don't have to live in this divide. We don't have to live in this time where God is, yeah, he's going to be in that stuff, and I really, really need to do that stuff and put all my attention to this, And God's not in this. God's not in school. And God's not around when I'm doing homework. And God's not around when I'm on that date. And God's not around when I'm at my job in my occupational field. But instead, the Lord is dwelling in every facet of our lives. And these Gnostic notions really are nowhere to be found in Scripture. But instead, we see a different narrative. We see this narrative play out in the New Testament and really throughout Scripture as a whole that the Lord has chosen to dwell with us The Lord has chosen and has had the audacity to draw near to us in our physical and material state. And if you need any further proof, look at the incarnation. Look at this Jesus, God incarnate, who came and dwelt among that which was ordinary, and that which was physical, and that which was normal, quote-unquote, as we would define it. God has dwelt among his people, and we've looked at this throughout the series these past two weeks. but uh, we see this beautifully articulated in Romans chapter eight, verse 11. The apostle Paul says this: "If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, who dwells in you." Keep that up for a second. This Holy Spirit dwelling in our mortal bodies, in in the substance of our lives, in this normal, in this ordinary, in this natural state, the Holy Spirit, God himself dwells and gives life to our mortal bodies and lives with us and intimately dwells with each of us. See, the Lord is intimately at work uh, in our lives through the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is close. The Holy Spirit is near and uh, he, he dwells with us even in the common and very ordinary of our lives, though we can so often tend to separate. Oh, God's not really in that. God's definitely in that. And as we look at Romans eight eleven in and this narrative of Scripture that we've seen the last couple of weeks, we see this principle that if our lives have been infused with the sacred presence of the Holy Spirit, then even the common ground of our lives can be found to be holy ground. If our very lives have been infused with this sacred presence of the Holy Spirit, then the common ground of our lives can be found to be holy ground. The Spirit has made his home in us. The Spirit dwells with us. And, and, and if, if, in fact, our lives are saturated and infused, as Paul says in Romans 8 11, with the Holy Spirit's presence, this sacred presence, then our ordinary and our natural is met with his sacred Which means that every area of our lives can be platforms and places and holy ground upon which we can meet the Lord and commune with the Lord and have relationship with the Lord. And we no longer have to carry these Gnostic notions of God where God's in this, but he's not in this. And and God likes to draw near to this, but he absolutely stays far away from this, again, with the exception of sin. Um, But instead, we can view our lives, the Holy Spirit dwells with us and in us. And so the common ground of our lives that we once associated God as being distant from now becomes holy because of his sacred presence, because he's living and dwelling with us and in us. He's met our ordinary with his sacredness. And when we think about it this way, then our jobs and our classes and our car rides and all the things we give attention to that we can so often turn a blind eye to the Lord's presence, we now find, wait, the Lord is dwelling with me. The Lord's dwelling with me and the Holy Spirit's in me as I go to school. As I do my homework through the watches of the night, late at night, and I'm, I'm giving attention to my, my classwork, the Holy Spirit's with me. And these can be moments where I stop and I can lay before God these acts of worship and say, Lord, this homework, yeah, I'm doing it for my class. I'm doing it for my professor. I'm doing it so that I can get my degree and eventually land that job of my dreams. But, but more than that, Lord, I'm doing this for you. I give this to you as an act of worship. I give this to you as an act of love and adoration. And Say, Father, thank you for letting me go to school. Thank you for letting me take psychology. Thank you for letting me take that gross math class. Thank you for letting me grow in my education. God, I give this to you as an offering. And then you do it. And it's an act of word. It's holy ground that you're treading upon. When you're driving uh, to, your, to your job, you can use those car rides and say, Father, thank you that I have a car. Thank you that I can get around by myself. Thank you that I can transport my Thank you that you are here with me. God, I give this drive. I give this space to you. This is yours. I worship you through it. And the very common ground of our lives can all of a sudden take this turn where it's holy ground. And we find that there's no separation between what God's in and what he's not in. But he's in these car rides just as much as he's in these settings, and he's in our times of class just as much as he's in times of worship. And though obviously times of worship and church and these spiritual disciplines naturally lend themselves and are created to foster awareness of God's presence and are created as mechanisms through which we encounter God, these other areas can be as well. Ways that we turn the common of our lives into the holy ground in which we meet the Lord. And as we do this... Every facet of our lives are lived with the Lord and for the Lord. Everything, every part of our being, every season of life, everything that our life entails, we can now live with the Lord and for the Lord. As we talked about last week, we can cultivate and foster this unbroken, unbridled communion with the Lord that is a sliver, a type and shadow, a foretaste of what we will experience in the new creation. This unbroken, consistent, uh, communal relationship with the Lord that is deep and that is rich and treats the common even as holy because of the Holy Spirit's infused presence in our lives. Um, last week, we looked at uh, the life of Brother Lawrence, uh, who has actually become a familiar figure of study here at Young Adults and we looked, for those of you who were here last week, we looked at this uh, this 17th century monk who was known as that clumsy oaf who broke everything. And some of you left encouraged just because you learned you weren't alone in that, which is great. Um, and he's, the, he, he's known as this clumsy oaf who broke everything, and yet he fostered this relationship with the Lord uh, where people far and wide took notice of, and they were writing him letters, and he responded back. And these letters have now been collected and compiled into a uh, one-volume book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And if you missed this, jump online, uh, listen to the podcast, because we went a little in-depth in the life of Brother Lawrence. But I want to take us back to the life of Brother Lawrence, because this idea of the common becoming sacred was such a cornerstone Reality to Brother Lawrence and his life and his ministry and his letters. Because Brother Lawrence, as the monastery cook who held one of the lowly positions in the monastery, uh, learned how to foster and cultivate not only this awareness of the Lord that we talked about last week, but he learned to cultivate this practice of doing all things for the Lord. He would scrub dishes for the Lord. He would, he would wash floors for the Lord. He would clean up vomit peaches off the table for the Lord. <laughs> Glory to God, yes. And he learned through these little actions in the monastery uh, that everything he puts his hand to could in fact be worship and could be holy ground upon which he met the Lord. And I want to take us to another quote by Brother Lawrence uh, from The Practice of the Presence of God. Beautiful. Here's what it says We can do the little things for God. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan for the love of Him. It is enough for me to pick up but a straw from the ground for the love of God. How very much shorter it is and easier to do our common business purely for the love of God to set his consecrating mark on all we lay our hands to and thereby to foster the sense of his abiding presence by the communion of our heart with his. Brother Lawrence got really good at turning the common and the ordinary of his life into holy ground. He, He got very good at fostering this awareness of the Lord that led it to the practice of flipping the cake, flipping pancakes, picking up straws, doing the little things for the love of God, this profound attitude of worship that wasn't exclusive just to coming into a church building and lifting hands and praising God and doing that corporately, which obviously we do. There's a special place in our lives of faith for that. But he fostered this cultivation, this this perpetual life of worship, This practice of doing all for the love of God, of uh, participating in all and laying all down as worship unto the Lord, and uh, when we can be so prone to view the spiritual things as the things that God's in, and yet he's distant from these physical things, Brother Lawrence calls us back this morning to this central reality that all can be worship, all can be holy ground all can be opportunities to adore and encounter our God of love. It can all be worship. It can all be adoration. It can all be opportunities for us to stop and pause and say, God, you are great. You are awesome. We, I love you thank you for provision. Thank you for life. Thank you for breath in my lungs. And we go on and on and we glorify the Lord. Lord, thank you for your salvation and your redemption. Jesus Christ, you are the incarnate son of God. I look to you for my hope, for my strength, and I thank you for Calvary. And we just worship him and adore him and lay our lives before him. God, I give you this homework. I give you this car ride. I give you these boring and mundane moments at my desk at work. And we do all as worship. We do all as adoration. We do all as if we're treading upon holy ground. And the Holy Spirit who lives in us now enables this. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability to recognize that everything, the entirety of our lives is saturated with God's presence. And as we walk this journey of faith, we're growing in this awareness that, wow, the Lord's with me in this area and the Lord's with me in this area and in this area. And we cultivate this awareness And we seek to live our lives in worship and adoration unto him, where God's not distant from the common and God's not distant from the ordinary and God's not distant from that which is natural or that which is boring or that which is mundane, but God can be and is in intimately in the ordinary and the common of our lives and all can be holy ground the final scripture we're going to look at is Romans 12.1, and this is the message translation. Eugene Peterson does such a beautiful job of writing this, but this is Paul saying this. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Look at this list. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around. Those are common things. Those are normal, ordinary things. And yet the Apostle Paul beautifully charges us uh, to lay those before God as an offering. Um, and in the next verse, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We see Romans twelve one and 2 both in and apart from the message translation, this worship, this adoration of God in the common. And so uh, the Lord's calling us this morning and throughout our lives to take the ordinary, to take that which is common, to take that which even some of us have written off altogether that the Lord is in. Uh, That which we've thought, I'm going to avoid that as much as possible, but I I need to do more of this. I need to press more into uh, the spiritual and less into the ordinary. Yes, obviously, give yourself to the disciplines, give yourself to the church, give yourself to set and corporate and formal times of worship, but recognize that the common and the ordinary can be holy ground upon which you tread. And so let us be the people of God who recognize that our lives are infused with the presence of the Holy Spirit and that wherever we give attention to and wherever we live in life, they can be opportunity for adoration. They can be opportunity for love. They can be opportunity for worship, where we lay our lives before God as an offering. And and it's all because the entirety of our lives have been saturated uh, with the presence of the Holy Spirit that was accomplished by the finished work of the cross. And so let us turn this common ground of our lives and let us recognize that it is, in fact, holy ground. And all can be worship, and all can be adoration, and all can be opportunities through which we worship our God of love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the inspiration behind the scriptures, that when we open your word, it's not just words on a page or words on a screen, but they are, in fact, life to our souls, medicine to our hearts and our minds. Thank you for teaching us, Lord, and we ask that you would uh, continue to teach us according to your scriptures. Would you help us to be the people who cultivate and foster an awareness of your presence and an awareness that our lives can be holy ground, that the normal that we've written off, the ordinary things that we've discounted can, in fact, be conduits through which we encounter and experience you and worship you, because, God, you deserve endless adoration. You deserve infinite praise. You deserve eternal worship and glorification. And we ask, Lord, that our lives here on earth would be a sliver of that eternity that we'll walk into. God, we're age to age to age. We will be proclaiming in the span of eternity your goodness and your love. And this story of redemption and reconciliation, of wooing us into your presence and calling us your own and making a way for us to be yours. So would you teach us, Holy Spirit, in this discussion segment, we ask that everything we, we heard and the things that stuck out in our hearts would be concrete, and that you would do a good work through it, Lord. Uh, let us put these words into practice, and we give this time to you, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen and amen. We'll take this common ground of discussion and uh, recognize this holy ground. The Holy Spirit's here, he's teaching, uh, he's speaking to us through his words. So let's, uh, let's talk Let's discuss, let's nuance, and God bless you at your tables as you discuss. All right. Bring those discussions to a close, and we'll wrap up here in a second. I think, uh, I think it's important to point out that if we recognize that um, our lives our holy grounds, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, as Paul talks about in First Corinthians 6. Uh, as we recognize and grow in the realization of this, uh, we should fully expect for unholiness to be um, displayed and, and for unholiness to be confronted and for us to realize that as we can tread upon holy ground and do these things for the Lord and worship Him throughout our lives, the unholiness of our lives quickly becomes exposed. Uh, Even in the music we listen to, even in the movies we watch, even in the actions we give ourselves to that we think are in a corner, get ready if you uh, grow in this awareness of holy ground, because unholiness in our lives will become exposed. And we should be great with that, because it should be our goal for the entirety of our lives, not just... you know, not, not in the spiritual sense, but in the very natural sense as well, to be completely saturated with the presence of God and to not do anything to displease Him. And so, as we uh, wrap up and as we dismiss this morning, uh, look for the little things this week. Look for the little things, those little moments where you worship and you can adore God, but you can give your hands to something that are tangible and concrete acts of worship. Lay your ordinary life down as an offering. Uh, before the Lord, as Romans 12 one says. So um, let me pray for you guys, uh, and then you guys can connect to small group leaders. We'll dismiss, and then we'll, uh, we'll go over to second service together, all right? Father, thank you for dwelling here with us. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for being near and close and intimate with us, and we ask that this week we would look for those little things that we can do as worship unto you. We look at those little moments, and we would foster all week long this awareness of your presence and this life of worship unto you. We give all glory and honor and praise to you, King of life. And we pray these things in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen and amen.